Scripture reading for this morning service can be found in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11. We'll read the entire chapter, although our text will only be the last portion of it. Let us read together from Acts, chapter 11, the Word of God. Verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing, Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. He brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in those days, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Dear congregation, can you imagine living in a city where there are no Christians? Or so few that you didn't even know there were any? It might be hard to imagine, but that is the way it was for much of the world until the time of Pentecost. The gospel then began to spread to more and more places, including to Antioch of Syria. Antioch was a major city, the capital of Syria. It was the third most prominent city in the Roman Empire for its great location for commerce and for its population of about half a million at that time. It was also very ethnically, culturally, and religiously diverse, with about 15% of its population being Jews. And it was also a very sinful place, with much immorality, as major cities often have. Antioch would also serve in time as the headquarters, if you will, the central place among the Gentile churches at that time. And it would also become then the place where Saul or Paul would be sent out as a missionary to the Gentiles. And it was very conveniently located for that, being on the northwest edge of Syria, serving like a quick entrance to the Gentile world that way, as well as by being only a few miles from the Mediterranean Sea. Well, what happened at Antioch? How a church rose there to life and to maturity is very instructive for the church today. We also live in a day and in a place, a country, a world, where sin abounds, including in our governments. We see how far we have gone when a new law calls out the beliefs of biblical sexuality as a myth. This really emphasizes the need for us to do what we should be doing anyways for the good of our neighbor, our brothers and sisters in Christ, for each other, our countrymen, our women, countrywomen, our boys and our girls, as it was done in Antioch of Syria. So let us see what that is. Our text is Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Our theme is the rise of the church at Antioch. And our points are, first, the telling of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the encouraging by Barnabas. 
And thirdly, the teaching by Barnabas and Saul. The telling of the Lord Jesus, the encouraging by Barnabas, and the teaching by Barnabas and Saul. First of all, we see the rise of the church at Antioch by the telling of the Lord Jesus. And who did this? Well, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word. Testimony of Stephen in chapter 7 upset his persecutors so much that they not only stoned him to death, but they began a great persecution of the Christian church at Jerusalem. And this resulted in the scattering of the people, mostly northward, into the other parts of Judea and into the region of Samaria. And eventually, likely several years later, perhaps from experiencing more persecution or simply being unwelcomed as Christians where they had scattered to, some or many of these took up the courage to go even further outside of their comfort zone and into the Gentile world, it says, as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. These were all northward from Judea and Samaria. Phoenicia was the narrow tract of of seacoast north of the edge of Syria. Cyprus was a large island off the coast of Palestine and, and west of Syria. And Antioch was in Syria itself, in, I think, what is called Turkey today. Also, as verse 20 says, some of these Jewish travelers were originally from Cyprus itself and Cyrene, which was all the way in North Africa. And presumably, this is mentioned to point out their convenience of being Greek-speaking Jews ministering in a Greek-speaking city. And so God truly knows how to work all things for good. Now, who did they speak to? There were two groups. The one group, which was at all three places, verse 19 says, was no one but the Jews only. Why? Why Jews only? Well, it may be because these Jewish tellers didn't understand yet that the gospel was also for the Gentiles. And they didn't know yet of Peter's encounter with Cornelius about that. It could also have been a language reason. Or simply that they just wanted to minister to their own people first. Verse 20, though, mentions an additional group of hearers, at least in Antioch. And it says, "But, But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists. Now, who are the Hellenists? That is a very good question, and there is some diversity of opinion on the answer. The KJV says Grecians, but that needs some explaining as the Greek word Hellenist actually does not refer to Greeks proper themselves. Instead, the term is often understood as Greek-speaking Jews. However, as in this context, Context, it can also be understood as any Greek-speaking person, Jew or Gentile, who is non-Greek. Verse 19 indicates that one group was Jews only. That means that this other group was not Jews only, 
but either Greek-speaking Gentiles only or Greek-speaking Gentiles and Jews. In either case, we see here the gospel ministry, including the Gentiles at Antioch. We see God's wonderful plan expanding in steps to the Gentile world. Now, what was it that these travelers were doing? Verse 19 and verse 20 both mention that they were preaching. But what was this preaching like? These are actually two different words in these verses in the Greek, neither of which are the primary word used for preaching as we think of it. Rather, the word for preaching in verse 19 means simply to speak or to say, to talk, to tell, to express in speech. And interestingly, the word for spoke in verse 20 is from the same word and means the same thing. And the word for preaching in verse 20 simply means to evangelize, to proclaim, convey, tell, announce good news. So the point is that these preachers were not actually preachers like we think of preachers, like, I am a preacher. They were not apostles nor pastors. They were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their qualification. And that is our qualification. We are not all called to be pastors and special missionaries or evangelists, but all can and should even want to, although courage can be an issue to be speakers, tellers, little preachers, to our children, to strangers, to each other, of the good news of Jesus Christ. Is this something that we are seeking to do as we have opportunity? I might have to confess, myself included, that there is indeed room here for improvement in our lives. But shouldn't we want to improve? And want to tell others of our precious Savior. This brings us to the next thing we see here. Their content. They were preaching, speaking, telling good news about the best thing in the world there is to talk about. The Lord Jesus. Interestingly, to the Jews only group, verse 9 says they preached the word. And to the Gentiles group, verse 20 says, they preached the Lord Jesus. Is there a difference? No, because the main subject of the word is the Lord Jesus. The main subject of the written word is the living word. But there might also be something more here when you consider the backgrounds of the two groups. The Jewish group, being Jewish, was raised with the knowledge and practices of the Old Testament. The Gentiles group, being Gentiles, were not. So what the Jewish group needed, besides the presentation of their great need, was convincing that the Lord Jesus truly was the Old Testament prophesied Messiah. They needed people to do like Saul did in chapter 9, verse 22. It says there, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus proving that this Jesus is the Christ. But in both cases, here in Antioch, it was the Lord Jesus that was lifted up. That Jesus is is not only the one and only Savior, 
Jehovah saves, who we must trust in as our Savior, but that this Jesus is also Lord, who we must bow to and submit to. But surely they talked about more than than that in order to present the Lord Jesus as meaningful, necessary, and precious. We cannot be sure, of course, of what they all said, but speaking of Jesus typically includes law and gospel. It includes telling of God as creator, of us as sinners with original sin as well as actual sins in in the breaking of God's laws, and that our sins and our guilt matter, being against our God who is holy, just, and good, who cannot have relationship with sin, who must punish sin with eternal punishment, and who is greatly offended by all of our sins, as being acts of ingratitude against all his great goodness to us. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, though, also, of course, includes telling the good news of him as Savior from our sins. Telling of his person as God and sinless man. Of his obedience as perfect to earn righteousness for his people. Of his payment to satisfy the justice of God for the sins of his people. And telling of his victory over sin, death, grave, and hell. Proven by his resurrecting from the dead, his ascending into heaven, his reigning at the right hand of God, from where he will come again to judge. Also telling of Jesus, of course, includes telling of the need for repentance and faith to confess our sins, to turn to God, and to put our trust in the Lord Jesus for deliverance, praying for grace and giving all glory to God for his grace by his Spirit. This is a message which is despised in the world. It is rejected by natural fallen men and women. It is called a myth by our politicians. It is hated. It is persecuted. It comes across as foolishness. As it is ineffective. Unless the Lord blesses it by his spirit. And this is what we desperately need more of today. And this is exactly what happened Back then, verse 21 beautifully says, And the hand of the Lord was with them. This is an Old Testament symbol for mighty divine intervention. This implies that he was with them by the power of his spirit and in an extraordinarily powerful way. And that is, like I said, what we desperately need more of today. That the hand of the Lord would accompany greatly the preaching not only from the pulpit, but in our lives, the telling of the Lord Jesus to others. And because the hand of the Lord was with them in a special way, they not only witnessed conversions, nor only a few conversions, but it says, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And this is how the church in Syrian Antioch arose, was born. Many of the Jews who were steeped in their religiosity turned, as one writer says, from their their righteousness by the law. 
and from all their show and ceremony. And many of the Gentiles, raised without Old Testament knowledge, without Scripture knowledge, also turned to the Lord and believed. May we see this again today. That God's churches would be purified and full and that more church buildings would be needed. Let us be most thankful that the Lord Jesus is also preached here. Lord's Day after Lord's Day. I I trust it has been a blessing to many, even to the saving of your soul. But let us go on and be little preachers ourselves, telling yet others, yet more, of our Lord Jesus. And let us do so with a prayer, praying also for the preaching here, that the hand of the Lord would be with us, not for our praise, but for the good of others and for God's praise. But is there anyone here who is going on rejecting God and our Savior, not confessing your sins, not turning to God, not trusting in Jesus? I have a text for you. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Moving to our next point, God in Christ, the great shepherd of the church, graciously saw to it not only that the church would rise in Antioch, that there would be a body of believers there, but also that their faith would be watered and grow through encouragement. And so we see the encouraging by Barnabas. God did this in Christ by providing Barnabas to encourage them. Verse 22 says, Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Jerusalem was the mother church, if you will. It was older and was the starting point of the spread of the gospel to other places. It was also where the apostles were still or most of them, with the exception at least of Saul, who went home to Tarsus. The church in Jerusalem then, the leadership, the apostles, having heard of what happened in Antioch, and with the concept of the gospel being for the Gentiles, still being relatively new, they selected to send Barnabas, who was known for his encouraging demeanor. They sent him to visit there to examine the genuineness of what they had heard and even to encourage those who had come to the Lord in saving faith. The selection was clearly also of God. We can say that he was the best choice for an encourager. Some people have a great gift for that. Acts 4, verse 36 says, and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. It's very interesting there. He was such an encouraging person. Perhaps you know someone like that, so encouraging, so blessed to be around. He was such an encouraging person that the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas meaning son of encouragement, 
Or we can say Mr. Encouragement. And conveniently, he, though a Levite, was also originally from Cyprus nearby, which means that he was also Greek-speaking. And what happened when he arrived? Verse 23 says that he saw for himself the grace of God. The grace of God. The marvelous grace of God that saves sinners. To him be all the glory. Believers, we must always remember that we were changed, not because of our wit, our smartness, but because of God's grace. Barnabas saw and was glad. He didn't discriminate, ignore, or reject those that were Gentiles. But he was glad because it was the Lord's doing. And so we should be glad, even when a notorious sinner, a prisoner, is saved. It is the Lord's will. Barnabas saw, rejoiced, and then he got to work. It says he encouraged them all. He encouraged them. He exhorted them with words of encouragement to support and strengthen them. This is also also what the Word of God does. What the ministry of the Word as well as sacrament is meant to do as well. We have surely been greatly encouraged by God's kindness have we not by the word of God, by the reading of it, by sermons, by the sacraments, by our devotions, by people talking to us. And this is also what we as Christians are to seek to do with one another. You know what a blessing it is. How heartwarming Christian fellowship can be where words of encouragement are are spoken. And when was the last time that you yourself spoke words of encouragement to someone? To someone struggling in their faith? To someone going through a difficult time? An anxious time? Or even an exciting time? Again, we should seek to be encouragers ourselves. And here too, perhaps there is room for improvement in our own lives. With this, what a wonderful thing it is, if you think about it, to bring words of encouragement. That is so much better than having to bring bad news or sad news, news of an accident, news of a death. Let us be eager in well-doing. And for this, too, let us pray even for opportunities as well as for good words to speak, and the hand of the Lord. What did Barnabas speak? It says he encouraged them all, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. They may have had many fears in that context. What would their family members think? Or say, literally, this is what they were thinking. What would their family members think or say or even do to them, whether Jewish or Gentile? Will they be persecuted? Will they be killed even? But Barnabas strengthened them in their heart. He strengthened their purpose of heart, meaning their determination, their commitment in serving, cleaving to, remaining faithful to the Lord. 
One commentator says that he ministered to them in a way that gave them firm and fixed resolution that come what can come, tribulation or distress, life or death, they would keep close to the profession of the truth in Christ, be joined or stick close to God's truth and ways. In short, he encouraged them to not be ashamed of the gospel ever, to not be afraid of people, but as a true disciple to deny themselves, to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. Let us be encouraged as well, because Jesus is with us indeed by his spirit and he will help us. How strong is our purpose of heart to serve the Lord? If it is presently weak, then I encourage you to seek out encouragement with the word, with fellowship. God blessed Barnabas with the gift to do this encouraging. We see how, how suitable he was for that being. It says, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, qualities which were an encouraging example as well. And may God bless us more and more with these qualities in our own lives that we too may in turn be a greater blessing to others. Now, how did God bless his encouraging of the new converts? We would expect the text to say something like this, that a great many of them were encouraged or strengthened in their resolve to serve the Lord. But it doesn't say that. I'm sure they were, but it doesn't say that. Instead, it says at the end of verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This is striking. This implies that God blessed Barnabas' ministry of encouragement to them so much that, that they were not only greatly encouraged and strengthened against whatever fears they had, but so much so that they even had the courage to go and be little preachers themselves even to their contacts, to their families, to the result that a great many more people believed and turned to the Lord. This goes to show that our words of encouragement to others, especially from the scriptures, pointing to doctrines or promises, can really make a difference in this world. You might not think so. You might be wondering what you, what you just said. But God can use it to make a difference in this world. It can not only uplift the one we talk to, but even lead to the conversion of those who they then talk to. Let us seek to be encouragers. And praise be to God for his constant supply of encouragement to us by his word and spirit in our lives. Moving on, we come to our last point, the rise of the church by the teaching by Barnabas and Saul. God in Christ, the great shepherd of the church, also saw to it that his people in Antioch would be further watered and matured, or we can say discipled. He would have them further grounded and grown in the knowledge of the scriptures to help them in their Christian walk, to give them greater peace and joy and usefulness, and to help them to be more able to give a reason for the hope within them and to preach to others and to encourage others. And so God would have them receive more teaching 
and they were willing to receive it by grace. He sent Saul to disciple them. In Acts chapter 7, you may remember that Saul was on coat duty. In chapter 8, he was persecuting. In chapter 9, he was converted. And here he was recognized for his teaching passion and gifts and is recruited to his first significant teaching assignment. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been in that church. They not only had a very, very passionate Christians speaking to others about the Lord Jesus, but they had one of the best encouragers in Barnabas and now also one of the best teachers in Saul. They had Mr. Encouragement and Mr. Teacher, if you will. Barnabas and even some others there could surely teach as well, but likely due to his busyness with a rapidly growing congregation, Barnabas sought help, especially with teaching. And so he recruited Saul. Saul was apparently in Tarsus, around the corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And it is not exactly certain what he was doing there. But somehow Barnabas knew that he was there. And Barnabas also knew that Saul had a great passion and gift for teaching God's word, as he even witnessed for himself in Acts 9, and referred to that when he stood up for Saul when he wanted to join the disciples in Jerusalem. Acts 9, verse 27 says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. I'm referring there to verse 22, where it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt at Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And so here we see that God greatly and graciously provided for the church in Antioch, as he does for his church still today. And now what did Saul actually teach? Or rather, what did Barnabas and Saul teach in in discipling? Well, we are not told that, but obviously it was the scriptures. Understandably, it was the doctrines. And practically, it was how the doctrines applied or should be applied to their lives. And what we are told in verse 26 is that this was not just a crash course, nor was it only to a few, but rather he reads, so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. It was for a whole year, a little less or a little more, and this doesn't mean that Antioch had no teaching afterwards, but after a year is when Barnabas and Saul had to leave. Surely other men, the more godly and gifted, continued the teaching. We are not told, but they surely ordained elders and, and pastors there before they left. And notice also that it says they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. This is either describing the worship on the Lord's Day, which is likely, or a very well-attended midweek service with many who were hungry to worship God and learn or relearn the truths of God's word. Church, the Sunday worship services 
really is the best place for this. As the primary place of grace, if you will. And in particular, regarding teaching, the afternoon service in our tradition, with the assistance of the catechism, is usually more instructional, more doctrinal than the morning service. For which we should be glad, seeing the value of teaching. Do you see that? Do you see the value of more teaching or learning or relearning the truths of God's word? To be further grounded and grown in the knowledge of the scriptures. To help with our Christian walk. To gain greater peace and joy and usefulness. To be able to give a better reason for the hope within us. To help us speak to others of the Lord Jesus. To help us to encourage others. To help us even to teach others ourselves a bit. Discipling them. Well, did this teaching... Discipling bear noticeable fruit? Yes, indeed. We see this by the rest of the chapter. First of all, we read at the end of verse 26 that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, no one is certain how this name started. This is when it started, but no one knows for sure how it started. Some say it started as an accusation by their enemies. Others say it started simply as an observation by society. And others yet say it was started by Saul himself in his teaching to give them a name, a title. In any case, it was a name that resulted from the teaching, a name that was accurate and that was accepted by them all. These men and women had learned and were learning the Christian life. And they were living like it or beginning to live like it too, being in the world but not of the world, and were comfortable and being called and even calling themselves Christians. What does the name Christian mean? The name Christian means followers, servants, believers of Christ. Those who belong to Christ, who pledge allegiance to Christ. Put in the words of the Catechism, as question 32 asks, But why are you called a Christian? Answer, because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of his anointing, that so I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. Christian. Congregation, are you unashamed as well, like these people, to be called a Christian? And are we living like it too? Including especially, well, especially how? Well, what is the summary of the law? Loving God and loving our neighbors. And they go together. This is the second result of the teaching showing the further rise of of this church. By the teaching, discipling, and God's grace, they were provoked to do good works to their neighbors and to the glory of God. The teaching of the word shouldn't make us unloving, certainly not, but more loving. 
should make us compassionate and kind, caring, especially to the household of faith, as well as, of course, to anyone in need, locally and around the world. And we see the love here of the Antioch Christians, the evidence of their true confession of faith and their maturity in the last part of the chapter, verse 27 and following. There you read of prophets, which God had given to the church in that special time. And they came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And it says, One of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. He was referring to one among several that took place between 45 and 48 A.D. during the reign of Claudius Caesar and due to major flooding of the Nile River and which resulted in a significant rise in grain prices. It says all the world, it's not everywhere, but understood as, it's understood as widespread or, or the empire. And the text then says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So with love and care for the churches throughout Judea, for their brothers and sisters in Christ there, these very new, encouraged, and instructed Christians gave willingly as each were able, probably money, as aid in their need. Now why did they give if they were also going to be hit themselves with a famine? And why did they give especially to Judea? Well, the church in Antioch may have been much wealthier in general, and they knew that believers in Judea had suffered great persecution. They likely became poorer than they already were that way. Judea may also have been forecasted to have the famine earlier. Antioch may have also been forecasted to not have it much at all. The church in Antioch may also have felt they owe a debt of gratitude to the church in Jerusalem in Judea, after receiving Barnabas and Saul from them. They may also have given aid to other places, although only Judea is mentioned. In any case, we see here that they were very generous and willing. The Judean church didn't even ask for money, nor were they told to give. We see here that faith blessed with encouragement and instruction produced this act of compassion, which surely was one among many. We also see here that it showed the unity that there was in Christ between the believers in Judea and here in Syria, between churches of largely Jewish Christians and a church with mainly with many Gentile Christians, and that this unity was not only a name but an actual deed and brought great glory to God. Now, the application to this is, are we, or are there more ways that we can be loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, near or far, or as we have opportunity, seeking to help them according to their need? It may be money, or involvement, or simply prayers, or encouragements. Let us seek to be truly a caring, loving people, seeking to live like our Savior himself and because of the grace 
of God. Well, there you have it, the rise of the church in Antioch. What an occasion. And what a model for the church today and for us as individuals. Are you a Christian? Like they were. You hear the word of the Lord Jesus all the time. But have you believed and turned to the Lord as well? And Christians, will you go and speak, or at least try to speak, to others? Will you go and seek to encourage those who need to be strengthened? Will you go and even try to teach a bit to disciple others, even if it is just your children? And will you unashamedly carry the name and the banner of Christian and seek to love God and neighbor with your whole heart as a Christian should and as Christ did? And lastly, congregation, will we continue to treasure, treasure again or begin to treasure the worship services on the Lord's days, morning and afternoon, the assembling of ourselves together where we are fed ourselves by the preaching, by the encouraging, and by the teaching of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.